Welcome back to another episode of Baxter's Buzz. I am your host, Baxter E. Hall. Welcome to my brain. Welcome to my frequency. Enter at your own risk. Uh, as always, I appreciate all the support. And as you guys know, I have people that uh, I am close to, um, fascinated by and, and inspired by. And today is no different. Um, joining me on the podcast today is uh, Renee Nicole Allen. She is part of the faculty at St. John's University School of Law. Hello, Renee. How are you? Hey, how are you, Baxter? Thanks so much for uh, having me. I'm excited to chat with you here. Man, this is, you know, I always feel like these are conversations I would be having anyway, and people are so interested in doing like such amazing things. It's like, why not sharing with the world? So thank you for taking some time. Well, I'm honored. Thank you. I'm interesting. So that's, I mean, that's, that's already, we're on a good start. <laughs> See? Uh, I think you're interesting and I, I, I'm sure I'm not the only one. So um, your, your path uh, has been, been law. Um, I'd like to start with just kind of asking you about sort of what led you down the path to, to study in law and, you know, people that maybe influenced you at, at the beginning or, you know, how old were you when you decided this was like something that you wanted to do? Uh, so that's a, there's a funny story there. Um, and I actually told this to uh, one of my college classmates who had no idea that she was the reason I went to law school a couple years ago. Um, I, I grew up uh, first wanting to be an astronaut and then wanting to be a doctor. And pretty much until my junior year in college, I thought I was going to be a doctor. Um, and that whole college level organic chemistry just didn't quite sit right with me. Um, and so I was at this kind of place where I needed to make a decision about what I was going to do next. Um, and I was sitting, I was an English major. I had already made that decision. I was sitting in uh, one of my English classes, uh, African-American lit classes, and one of my classmates was filling out her LSAC uh, application at the time, still something you did on paper. Um, and she was filling out her paper application. I was like, oh, what's that? What are you doing? And she's like, it's law school. I'm applying to law school. And I'm like, oh, really? Like what prerequisites do you need to go to law school? And she's like, you don't need any. And I was just like, I'm going to law school. <laughs> that was it. That was, I decided that day. Like I was like, oh, you don't need any prerequisites. They actually prefer, you know, one of the things that they were saying at the time is that they preferred like someone who had strong reading and writing backgrounds. And so mm. as an English lit major, I've written a ton of papers, done a lot of research. And so I was like, maybe this is good for me. And and, and people who know me know that this was a great fit for me, um, even though it was not a career that I sought out. I didn't know any lawyers growing up. Mm. Um, and so, um, but I'm always right. Uh, I am, you know, I think people would describe me as argumentative or adversarial. Yeah. Uh, I like to have a good debate. Um, and so, so yeah, so that's how I ended up in, in law school. What was it though? Was, I mean, yeah, I mean, like what, what was the like besides like the, the prereq was pretty much a clean slate. Like what was it about law that you said, was it the, was it the, the, the debate piece? I think it was the challenge. Mm. So if I'm totally honest, I had not been in situations in, you know, K through 12 and even early college where I really felt like I was challenged academically. 
Um, you know, I was in the top of my class, I got A's, but I didn't feel like I worked really hard for them. It was something that came naturally to me. And this is not, it's not a flex, it's just true. Um, and so, you know, one of the things I consistently heard about law school is that it was tough. Um, and I, I didn't at that point really want to be a lawyer, but I knew that going to law school would open a number of doors and I knew that it would be academically challenging. And I was really, I really wanted to challenge myself. Um, and I wanted to, you know, not that I was grade focused, but I wanted to get grades that I felt like I actually worked for, hard mm. for. And, um, and I really had not had that experience um, before going to law school. So, so yeah, wow. so that was the real draw for me. It was just a challenge. Of, yeah, it was a challenge. Of it. That's pretty admirable. Um, <laughs> I took on a lot of debt to be challenged. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there were other things I could have done. Uh, well, you, yeah. You, well, you pay. You pay for for. And you know what? The the question is, was it more challenging? Did you did you find it as challenging as you as you hoped for? It was definitely challenging. It was a different way of learning. Um, it was being in a room with people who, because of the way they were selected, were I hate to use the word equal, but we were all coming into it, I guess, on the same page. And so the environment was challenging. Um, and, and I think coming into law school um, as a first generation law student was unconnected from the profession, not mm. knowing anything about what to expect. Um, that in itself presented its own challenging. So ch challenges. So yes, it was a yes. Well, yeah, uh, aside from the academic challenges right it's just this you know um entering in this world that you mentioned right. um it's a white male dominated uh you know industry like most industries um in america what were some of those types of challenges and some of your experiences navigating it, you know, as you, you know, started law school and even, even today, as you are, you know, part of the faculty at St. John's? Um, so I think, you know, law schools have, I'll say, you know, I started law school in 2006. Um, law schools, my law school, University of Florida, shout out, Living College of Law. Um, my law school in particular, uh, the one I graduated from, is, has done a, has come a long way um, in increasing the diversity and um, of the, the law school classroom. I was in uh, a law school section, so a kind of a we took all our we take our classes in the first year in sections. Um, okay. There were four sections uh, in my law school section had about a hundred people, and there were four black people there. Um, mm. And so, um, so and we now kind of changed it. The the tide has changed in that more women are going to law school than men, so law school classes are now more female dominated. Um, but, and, and we've increased the diversity some, but there were some challenges there for sure. Um, because I never wanted to be in a classroom feeling like I was speaking for all black people, but there was only three other black people in the room. So I was also very conscious of every time I spoke that it, that people might perceive me to be speaking for all black people. Right. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of this balancing act um, that I started doing as a student and, and, and have continued to do, you know, in the profession 
um, and even somewhat still uh, as a faculty member, though, you know, I think I am in a, a place where I'm focused on authentic authenticity and, um, you know, really bringing my authentic self uh, to the classroom. Um, but there are challenges there. Um, I practiced law um, for a couple years in Metro Atlanta, some very rural counties outside of Atlanta. Um, and I, you know, I still remember going to court, having on my suit, having my files in my hand, you know, dress the whole part um, and standing out line, standing in line outside of the courthouse in the line for so a separate line for attorneys um, and standing in the attorney's line and having the sheriff walk up to me and say, hey, this line is for attorneys. And I'm, you know, I'm like, yeah, and that's why I'm here, um, you know, yeah. like, but it was just this assumption, just from looking at me, not even know me from, you know, anyone, just looking at me decided that I didn't belong there. Um, and so, um, so I've been really on this professionally, on this, you know, challenging what it is, uh, we think a lawyer, what does a lawyer look like, right? Even, you know, not just what, their race or their gender, um, but what they wear, you know, how much emphasis we put on professionalism by, by proxy of appearance, right? Like that, mm -hmm. that appearance is some kind of proxy for professionalism and it's not. You can wear a suit and be very ethical and very unprofessional. Um, and so, um, so I've thought a lot about that. I've, I've talked a lot about that. And I, I you know, I want to, uh, in the capacity I am in now, challenge really what we think about what a professional looks like, what a lawyer looks like. Yeah, I, um, I have a friend who is uh, a practicing attorney, a black, a black woman. And we were talking about a month or so ago about, uh, you know, everything's been virtual now. And so she still, you know, throws on her uh, sports coat and, you know, she's still dressed, you know, at least waist up, right? as you as you would expect a professional quote unquote to dress and um you know she's talked about some of the 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 folks that don't feel that pressure and how they kind of show up as attorneys and it and it's it like it baffles her um because there's still that sort of uh double standard when it when it comes to that. and then and then i think that professional Black people, I'll speak for myself, and maybe you feel the same way, Renee. I don't feel like I can get away with with certain attire, even in a Zoom call, even when I'm when I'm meeting um, with with my uh, colleagues. If I'm on camera with them, I have a collar on. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah I mean, definitely, definitely, I agree. I think there is, um, you know, I'm conscious of that, and I think. I think being at home and teaching on WebEx, I think I felt a lot more relaxed. And I think maybe my students have appreciated that. Um, but there's still, I, I understand the boundaries of even me being in a more relaxed space. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, for the most part, it's still business from the waist up, you know, and yeah. <laughs> who knows what's going on elsewhere, but. Uh, yeah. um, it's right. not there. No, there's nobody's right. business. Right. But, um, <laughs> But yeah, I don't think that, you know, I just don't think that um, that I have the luxury of showing up and not at least looking the part, whatever that stereotypical part is. Yeah. Um, because I think, um, you know, and I write about this, I, I think um, black women, unfortunately, are presumed to be incompetent. And mm. so when I show up, the presumption is I'm not 
qualified, competent, capable. And I have to do the work then to demonstrate that I am. I don't just get that presumption, um, you know, because of my education or because of my job title um, that I actually have to work to build some of that credibility. And part of that I acknowledge starts with my appearance, whether I like it or not, that's just the world we live in. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so you talked about like these virtual uh, courses that you're, you're, you're teaching is that, and you also mentioned like this, uh, you know, your authentic self and, you know, you relax in some of your dress. Has it, you know, was it, had you started to feel some of that and turn, were you starting to turn that corner prior to COVID or, uh, you know, like explain that process as far as you being more comfortable and, and, and throwing a, you know, a sweatshirt on, you know, we've talked uh, off air about, you know, your hair and how, you know, it's not conscious, but also you're not worrying about if today you have braids and next week in class, you may have a different hairstyle, right? I mean, there's, there's a lot of um, confidence that has to come with those decisions because unfortunately you, you're, you know, just more cognizant about it than because, because of what you know is around, right? Yeah, I mean, there's certain, there's definitely, a, I think, a, a certain level of awareness um, that, you know, um, you know, there's a lot of things that I think we as Black women think through um, that, you know, people who aren't Black women have no idea of what we're, we're constantly having to uh, think about as we um, think about how we appear in the world, particularly in professional spaces. Um, and uh, my students, uh, my, my first year writing students are working on a Crown Act uh, problem this semester. Um, and, and very unintentionally, as I have um, kind of evolved with my natural hair, I've worn, you know, a wig, braids, natural curly hair. I mean, I've worn, I've had every natural hairstyle that, you know, could come up and it, and it hasn't been intentional. All right? It's just part of my own growth um, as an individual and me kind of just exploring my natural hair. Um, but my students are working through a crown act problem. And so they're getting from week to week um, something different and no one's remarked about it. I, they're professional. I, I don't expect that they do. Um, but I guess as my teaching is evolving, I also am evolving as an individual and I, I feel more um, confident and comfortable bringing some of these issues that are very important to me as a black woman into the classroom. And I also feel more confident and comfortable in bringing my authentic self and my natural hair in whatever version it is on that day uh, to the classroom. And I will say that that, that part of that comfort um, came last year. Um, with the, um, with, you know, Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and the social unrest in this country and around the world, um, I felt like we were really ready as a law school community mm. to start having real conversations. Mm. And I think the beginning of those real conversations is that all of us got to bring some authenticity to the table. Yeah. 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 The, thank you for, for sharing that. And, uh, salute to you for for stepping in that because it's I'm sure it's you know uncomfortable at times but you know we've had the conversation in different circles um around this whole like well I don't see color uh comment right and even if it's initially if it was meant to be 
sort of a peace offering or a, hey, look at me, I'm not racist or anything like that. It's really um, dismissive, right? Um, and we don't want to get into that today, but but I think that you bringing yourself and, and other faculty and, and students bringing themselves opens up those conversations, right? I mean, I have a, a, a friend who's who's a professor, um, very young face, right? Uh, similar to you. And she's like, she's doing the opposite of what you're doing. She feels, you know, she's buttoned up. And when she's on, you know, she just got this new job at this new university during COVID. They, they haven't even seen her um, yet like, you know, in person. And so she's like buttoned up, you know, because she she's like, I already look young. I'm this black woman. Like, I want to make sure that they kind of know who, who I am. And I, I think that both of those approaches still, again, provide the entire picture or more of the picture of what we are yeah. as people, first and foremost, with different yeah. sides of us. There is no perfect box that any of us should should fit in right yeah and yeah. I'm still you know even in this space so like I'm this is my 10th year I'm actually wrapping up year 10 of teaching I mean you know if you think my face looks young now imagine you know 10 years ago I was walking in there and they were like who is this you know baby in here saying yeah. she's teaching us something yeah. um and I did feel like because of my age because of my race because of my gender that I had to overcompensate a little bit mm -hmm. um and so it's very conscious of um, you know, my approach then. I think now I'm doing, even though I'm taking some of these steps to bring my, my most authentic self um, into the workplace, I'm still conscious of, you know, some of the things that, some of the cues I give out. So I'm always, when I introduce myself to a class for the first time, for example, mm -hmm. I always mention, you know, this is my X year teaching, right? So don't let this young face fool you. That's you right. know, I'm not new, I'm not new to this. Um, but, um, you know, so there's still things that I'm doing, you know, for me saying, oh, this is my 10th year of teaching is my collar shirt, basically. I'm just, for I've sure. just gotten a new, a new shirt with a collar yeah. on it. Um, yeah. But yeah. it's still me doing the same things, right? It's still that same kind of work. It's building credibility mm -hmm. um, that, you know, unfortunately has to happen for us. Yeah. Yeah. Congratulations on approaching your 10th year. That's, that's kind of crazy. Um <laughs> When, so we, I mean, we talked about you sort of navigating um, and some of the pressure that you may feel in your role as faculty. Is there something, do you have a mission um, that you're trying to accomplish? Is there something that, you know, you're destroying stereotypes probably daily because of being a black woman in this, in this profession um, at this, you know, prestigious school, but are you conscious of it? And are, are there are there more specific things that you are trying to accomplish while 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 you teach? Um, just in general. Yeah, I mean that's a good question. I definitely, for me, it is important for um, students, all students, to see someone who is different from, you know, this is, the law is a very white male dominated uh, profession. Uh, only 5% of lawyers are black. Um, and so 
you know, for me, um, you know, it is important that my students see something that's different from that, right? And not only, you know, and, and I share these things because I think people need to hear them. So not only am I a black woman, I am also a first generation lawyer. I was also raised by a single parent. I also have six figure student loan debt. I also grew up, which, you know, working poor. I mean, I didn't know, I didn't know we didn't have any money, but we didn't have any money. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I mean, these are all things that, you know, I think it's important that our students see that there's value in all of these different life experiences to the profession as a whole. Um, and so when we encounter people with these different life experiences, we get different points of view. Um, and that then just makes our profession so much more better. Um, and so for me, it's, an import it's important to, to shed some of these things, to share some of these things so that um, I hate using the word diversity. And I think I was gonna try and get through this whole thing without ever using the word, um, but so that people can see these diverse experiences um, and how they really enrich our interactions and ultimately enrich our profession. I wanna come back to this diversity thing, but before, <laughs> And I may sound very naive, so forgive me. When we talk about law, um, the, the last time we spoke, we talked about a, a book that I was reading that that you've read probably. I don't know how many. I didn't know we didn't talk about it in in detail, but the new Jim Crow. Mm. And um, a friend of mine had had mentioned it to to a judge uh, friend of his and the, the, the judge didn't know that the book existed, a white judge, he didn't know that the book existed, but he said, yes, of course, like it made so much sense because he, as a judge has been at this position to sort of see how some of these laws and things have sort of played out. Here comes my potentially naive question, Renee. Um, because you are helping to teach and groom and influence this new wave of attorneys, do you feel like it's important because you look different than 95% of them? Like, do you think it's important for them to see you and do you think that it will help sort of ch like change maybe some some preconceived stereotypes or anything that they may have as they go out into the world so i hope so right like that's the hope right i think that um you know i i i, I did a talk recently and i talked about the difference between um or, or what diversity can do right so there's there's diversity in numbers um, and I think diversity in numbers, you know, does help with what you just said, that they do get to see if you are entering this space with some stereotypical view of what Black women are like, or Black people are like, or any X people, right, any kind of anything, um, then, you know, hopefully by encountering me, you've gotten that perspective challenged. Um, and then you take that challenge and, and you move on and maybe you start to see the world in a different way, right? That's diversity in numbers. And I, I think that is a part of what diversity in numbers does. Um, structural diversity, however, is a whole nother 
uh, conversation. I don't think my presence alone is doing anything for that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think how we get to making changes on the structural side of things is we first, we do need voices. Uh, and so we, we, we need a seat at the table. We need people who look like me and you um, to have a voice and to say, no, it's not always that way, actually. Sometimes, yeah. uh, even though this is what the law looks like on the paper, um, how the laws are executed actually look different. And they might look different depending on what you look like. Um, and so yeah. being in the room, we have to be in the room really to have that conversation. And so I do, I don't wanna minimize the importance of diversity in numbers. It matters that I'm where I am. Um, but I also don't want to um, leave that as the only check box, right? Like that, that is not the end sure. all be all of um, the change that we, we wanna see, not just in the legal profession, but in this country period. Sure, sure. And it's also important for them to know that you're not the only person that looks like you that's doing these professional things, right? You know, that whole, you know, exception to the rule thing right. is another stereotype right. because uh, folks will start to say, oh, Renee, no, no, Renee's not like, she's different, she's special. Right. Um, and although part of that may be true, right. you are, but not <laughs> in <true>. that. <laughs> no, not, but I hear you. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Like there's this, I, I, um, um, black exceptionalism is something that, mm. you know, I'm, I'm conscious of and that they're, they're all different kinds of black and all, you know, there's, there's no one way to be black, right? I don't want anyone to leave, hear this conversation and, and leave thinking that, you know, I support that notion. Um, you know, they're, they're, but I, you know, I hope that's just the start of an exploration, right? Like if yeah. you, as opposed to taking on this kind of black exceptionalism approach. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and as we all, I mean, I can't say as we all know, because clearly we don't all know it, but you, you'd be surprised with the, if you started to think about the number of uh, things that you had in common with, with people without way, you know, I mean, like 95.5, right? <laughs> to the small differences that, that we have. There are things that just are important to people, right? Safety, uh, you know, family. Food. Food, yes, yes, <laughs> we will get to that. Um, <laughs> these, these, these common things, we want the best for our, for our children and for our, the young people in our family, nieces, nephews, the, you know, the whole thing. Um, and then there's this small, oh yeah, you know, I'm black, you're white, I'm from here, you're from there, my religion, you know, there, it's just a, a small percentage. And, and we, for whatever reason, we, we spend so much time on these, these differences and not spend as much time uh, celebrating the things that we have in common and learning and learning from one another. Um, so you have a few things going on, uh, a couple of uh, new things. Um, man, I don't know where to start. I, I'd, I'd like to, to hear about a bit about this, this article that you are sort of in the process of finishing. Um, I know you, you sent me a couple of sort of high level things that you're trying to cover, but can you speak to this article that will be published uh, relatively soon and kind of what, what it entails? 
Yeah, so the article is titled From Academic Freedom to Cancel Culture, um, Silencing Black Women in the Legal Academy. Um, it's going to be uh, published by the UCLA Law Review this summer. It should be out in June. I'm really excited about uh, the opportunity to have my work um, in this forthcoming volume. Um, and ultimately, the article kind of picks up on a 30 plus year line of black women law professors writing about their experiences in the legal academy. Um, and it really, for me last summer, sitting in my Brooklyn apartment alone because we were at the height of the pandemic and New York City was an epicenter, uh, along with you know, the, the uh, Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, um, you know, really thinking about how I wanted to have my voice heard as a legal scholar and what was important to me to say. Uh, and, and that was, it, it was feeling unheard. It was, you know, me starting to do some research and discovering that in, in, in 1990, a group of black women law professors had gotten together and kind of formed this collective and had started writing about their experiences. And their experiences 30 years later were mine. And I, mm. I had the same exact things to say. The things that they raised were the things that I'm, I'm still talking about today. It's the things that I talk about in the article. Um, and really feeling like maybe the legal academy is at a turning point. That if mm. we're able to have these honest conversations about anti-racism in the legal profession and in the law and in the, in the world broadly, that we first got to have conversations about how we aren't anti-racist as institutions and how structurally um, our policies, our practices, and our traditions, our unspoken rules have operated really to silence Black women uh, in this space. Um, and so, so that's what the article's about in a nutshell. Um, it is this, we see these instances where students mostly are leading the charge to call out um, and to, you know, quote unquote, cancel um, law professors who have engaged in acts of blatant racism. Um, and uh, these professors have gone essentially unpunished um, because of the protections they have um, through tenure and academic freedom. And so for me as a black woman, as, as I watch this play out, um, you know, how is it that I then get uh, the academy to acknowledge the very subtle experiences that I have with systemic gendered racism, if we can't even do anything about these very blatant, obvious um, racist uh, occurrences. And so, uh, so the paper starts there um, and it kind of works through all of the ways um, systemic gendered racism really causes black women to be silent um, and puts us in a position where we know that if we're going to be successful in this realm, we've got to negotiate our identity in a way that causes us to have to conform. So the norms exist uh, in white spaces. Uh, law schools are very much white spaces. Um, and, and it's our job then to enter this space and conform to the norm. Mm. And, and if you don't conform. Then you don't, you don't work out here. It's not an option, you have to conform. I mean, that is the, the path to, and that's, I guess that's what's problematic. But the path to success, the path to tenure, um, is that you conform to these norms, um, or you don't, and, and you, so you probably aren't successful in, in accomplishing um, that goal. There's a term that you used: um, intersectional battle fatigue. 
can you elaborate on that and talk about how how you cover that uh, in the article, but just in, in general, sort of what that, you know, kind of define that for me? So, um, so intersectional battle fatigue occurs when um, anyone who lives at the intersection. So for me in this paper, I'm specifically talking about the intersection of race and gender uh, for black women um, and that we really can't separate or distinguish um, these two experiences that the experiences are compounded by both race and gender. Mm -hmm. um, and that specifically when you are in a white space um, where you have to navigate your identity in order to be successful and thrive, um, that there are health consequences associated with mm -hmm. that. And so the intersectional battle fatigue really describes ultimately the health consequences um, that Black women experience um, from having to negotiate their identities to be successful in white spaces. And that's just, that's not just in legal academia, that's in corporate America, that's everywhere. Um, and um, so that, I mean, that's, that's um, you know, stress, anxiety, um, you know, long-term, very serious cardiovascular issues, um, PTSD from particular incidents with systemic gendered racism. Um, I mean, the list goes on, um, but it, it really, there are some very serious negative health consequences to uh, having to negotiate your identity uh, in, in a way that causes you to have to conform all the yeah. time. Yeah, I mean, conforming your identity, you know, that's at the core, that's a very stressful proposition to start without even going into the details of it, it's like, okay, what, why do I have to negotiate? And, you know, but if I want to, you know, and, and, and here's the question that a lot, there's a couple of different schools of thought. Um, it's like, okay, do we buck the system? Do we reject the system? Do we call the system out? Whether it be legal academia, corporate America, or just uh, politics or just, you know, society as a whole, right? Or do we somehow try to manage to um, con conform enough to sort of change it from the inside out? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think, I think, I, I don't, I, there's this concept of a critical mass. Um, and, you know, it, it, people write about it like it's magic. Um, but, but I don't think that it, just looking at the last 30 years and in our efforts to diversify law school faculties with women of color and people of color, if we're waiting on a critical mass to change things from the inside, we're gonna be waiting a long time at mm -hmm. this rate. I'll be retired, you know, and we might not reach the critical mass yeah. at that point. And so, you know, I think it really is calling upon the people in positions of power and privilege, either because they have academic freedom because they've earned tenure or because of because they are white men, um, that really it is impressing upon those people to use their own status um, in the legal academy to make the changes, the structural changes that we'll need. Because we really can't rely on critical mass. I mean, we just, we, we won't, at, at this rate, I mean, unless something changes, yeah. the critical mass is not going to get us where we need to be. I can't change anything from the inside. There are two black women on two, including me, on my faculty. Yeah. Explain that concept quickly, like the critical mass. 
critical mass. So it's just, a, it's, it is no certain number, but it's enough of whatever the group is present on a, uh, I'll just say a law school faculty um, to start making that change from the inside, to feel empowered, to have a voice. Now, now the people that are um, calling these, um, these, these, these systems out, for lack of a better term, do those people need to come? So we, we, we need the, 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 the folks that are benefiting the most to, to start to, to rework and bring awareness. But who, who make the, the, those appeals to, to those people to start the conversation? Does that come from the inside? Or does yeah, that- I mean, that, that comes from the inside. And I, you know, I don't even know that, um, I think it's an awareness, right? So in having these conversations with some of my white male colleagues at you know, my current institution and, and friends at others, um, there that, that if I wasn't there to share these experiences, then I wouldn't be able to raise the awareness so that these people could then use their privilege and positions of power um, to start driving some change. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, even if there's just one of me, there's a benefit of me speaking up and sharing these experiences. Um, yeah. It is on, it, that in itself is a part of that movement towards change. Um, but, um, you know, I think what we sometimes uh, have a tendency to do, and I'm, I'm thinking about um, Pamela Newkirk's Diversity Inc. I don't know if you're familiar with the text, but um, you know, diversity is a, a billion dollar business in this country. Yeah. Um, and I think we sometimes are so la- laser focused on the numbers being the results that we miss the mark. It's mm. not, you can, I mean, we can have 12 of me on my faculty. If we're not moving towards those structural things, if, the, if, 12 of, if there are 12 me's on the faculty and we aren't in positions of power to make any change, then we're still not getting anywhere, yeah. right? Yeah. We're just doing the same things over and over, but with more people that look like me. Um, and that's not the result we, we should want either. Right, right. Um, wow. I don't even want to go into where I want to go right now. That's another conversation, but... Okay. The, the, the business of diversity, it's very interesting, right? right. And, um, and then you have these people that have been put in these, they, these newly created positions, these diversity and inclusion, uh, officers, managers, et cetera. And although the, the people that have been put in place, they may mean well, if they're not truly empowered by the leadership at these organizations, they're just, it's just a PR move. Yep. If they don't, if they don't really make intentional, you know, changes or, or, you know, go about, you know, looking for things to uh, implement and empowering these people. Right. Um, yeah. It's a, it's, 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 it's a We lot. can have a whole talk for an hour just on, on that. Oh my God. Um. And I, and, you know, and I would just love to hear, you know, your thoughts about that whole piece because you know i'm in a role um where you know my group at capnic um we have a uh diversity and inclusion uh team uh that we're doing some of the initial conversations for our clients Mm -hmm. um just really trying to bring about um sort of awareness as far as where there may be some areas for improvement for organizations, but we aren't trying to be the 
experts, but we're trying to start the conversation. And I, I think that although it's a great initial step, I'm afraid that some folks may stop there mm-hmm. and say that they've done something, mm-hmm. right? And it and 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 that's the the piece that kind of that a um, a cynic can 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 spend a lot of time kind of dismissing, right, and not not feeling like there's anything that's going to change from it. So, um, yeah, another conversation for another day. It is. I yeah. mean, you know, I'm wondering how we get to you know, if some of these positions, you know, in the, in the language of today, if some of these positions become anti-racism officers, you know, Mm. like, because because for me, um, on principle, that's really the work, right? That includes, that that would include also diversifying, and that would include equity and inclusion. Absolutely. Um, But it's a lot, it actually gets to looking at the policies, Yes. Um, and how structurally institutions are still perpetuating racism, you know, even when it, it looks really good from the outside. Um, and so, really you know, I wonder, good, yeah. I wonder if we're going to have anti-racist officers and directors, you know, in the, mm. in the near future, because um, I think that really gets to the heart of tackling the structure. That's so good. Tackling. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't see anybody, you know, naming an anti-racist officer. I'm maybe kind of dreaming out loud. No, no, no. I think you may be on to something. Okay. Well, I mean, if I am onto something, y'all heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. It was that's me. right. Because ultimately that's the work that needs to be done. Um, and, and oh gosh, like I said, there's just so, so many, like it's, it's such a can of worms, but you're right. Um, we do we want to check a box or do we want to make some real change? And um, we need to each organization, in my opinion, needs to just kind of define where they are today, and then try to determine you know, or then they need to determine what they're trying to accomplish. And if it's not an anti, whether they call it this or not, if it's not an anti-racism agenda. Then they're already off the mark. Correct. Yeah. Let let let's 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 move on. Okay. Move on. <laughs> um, we can, we're gonna. Oh gosh, yeah. And and I really want to pick your brain about about that, but another another time. Okay. Um, another thing that you have going on, as if you know you don't have enough. You are um, teaching a a new course uh, in the fall, right? That that you are sort of creating. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm, I'm still, I'm working on it. Uh, it's been officially approved, so it will, it will definitely be offered in the fall. Um, but the course is called The Music and the Movement, Race, Rhythm, and Social Justice. Mm. Um, and it starts with lynching uh, and Billie Holiday's Strange Fruit. Um, and it ends with a look at the Black Lives Matter movement and uh, J. Cole's Be Free. Mm. Um, and it, it takes a progressive look at, I think, seven different movements. So lynching, the Great Migration, the Civil Rights Movement, the Black Power Movement. Um, and um, it looks at the law and the evolution of the law um, from the perspective of the music that came out of these movements. Why music? Oh, music is my thing. I'm yeah. very much a... I mean, I almost can't do anything in silence. And so 
music has always been at the background of, of anything, whether I'm reading, cooking, anything. There's always yeah. music. Um, and I can actually look at, I, I think what made me think about um, this course in this way is because I can think about certain periods of my life and I automatically go to the music that yeah. define that period of my life. Um, yeah. And so um, I thought it would be cool for students. We don't have a lot of opportunities for creativity in law school. Um, so I thought it would be really cool for students to have some creative outlet. Um, and for those folks who are musically inclined like me um, to really take a look at how music um, affected these different movements and ultimately changed the law. Yeah, I mean, we, uh, hip hop got a lot of uh, credit, right? you know, rightly so about sort of being a reflection of what was going on, but it started way before hip hop, yeah. right? Yeah, music uh, is a mirror. To, to what's going on in society, it, it really is. Yeah, yeah. And and being able to really, you know, document and capture those moments, you know, aside, even video footage of certain things doesn't tell the whole story, Yeah. right? So you need all these different pieces to complete it, but the music of the times um, along with the footage, along with the stories, um, it, it, it really adds a ton of important context to what, what was going on. Um, and I, I mean, I'm a music fan too. Um, and so like, it, I just think it's brilliant and it makes so much sense because you can listen, to, if you don't know anything, once they go through the course, they listen to the, to the music, the two things I think, if nothing else, and I'm biased, but two things I think that will happen regardless is um, an appreciation for the art that maybe they didn't have for before, right? Um, you know, uh, learning about an artist uh, that they may not have ever, you know, Nina Simone, you know, who... If they even know, I'm, I may be introducing them to something new. So yeah, yeah, which is which is exciting, and and um, I, I think it'll be appreciated. And then understanding that, you know, uh, the struggle, whether it's you know, I know you're not going to get into any uh, jazz necessarily, but there's been all these expressions of um, just despair or, or you know the blues right it's all these different things that black people have it's really come from this this sort of pain and we've you know made these this amazing art from it while also expressing um ourselves I, I just think it's so dope yeah yeah I'm really I mean I think one of the things that doesn't happen a lot in law school is that you know our students learn by reading cases and so a lot of times they just read the case, but they aren't getting the historical social context of how, you know, this law or this case came to be decided. Uh, and, and so, um, you know, I'm, I'm approaching the class, uh, like you just said, like a, the, my approach to each class is a read, watch and listen, because I think mm -hmm. you need all three. You can't just look at the song and do a reading. You can't just do a reading. Um, and, and a lot of these with these movements, um, it was also physical. Um, they were also, you know, you, you need to see it. So for me to hear a song about strange fruit and not see lynching, 
you know, you're doing the art a disservice. Um, And so, and it helps really for someone to put themselves in the context of, you know, when that song was, uh, you know, being performed and what was actually going on. Uh, And and the courage it took. uh, And the courage it took. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Yeah. There's so many uh, layers of that. And, you know, potentially, be, you know, being blackballed and, and, and how far would this song be able to go depicting the things that it's, you know, that it's depicting. Yeah, um, yeah I can't wait to, to kind of, you know, once you get the, everything to, you got some, some great stuff going on and I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to. Thank you. I'm really excited. I tweeted about the course uh, just to tell people about it uh, last week or a week before last. And like a law professor in another school, I know on Twitter, but I've never met him. And uh, is also DJs on the side and has offered to like make a mixtape out of the course. I'm like, I'm so excited. Like the music and the movement. I'm also uh, uh, writing a book of the same title and now now in a class and I'm going to have a (laughs) mixtape. So I'm like, who's going to, who's going to, uh host a mixtape oh a mixtape needs a host yeah like dj drama or something oh why would it i guess the person who offered to create the mixtape since he's the dj i, I would give, i would give him first dibs uh, certainly not me um that would i was gonna yeah. say did you want to get in there and no. <laughs> <laughs> no 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 i have a lot of talents and i, I know i know my strengths i also know where i'm not gonna <laughs> Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Um, I'll say this. I, I, I think it's super important work that you're doing. Thank and you. I, I think that I know you're excited because we talked about it. I know I could see the excitement in your face today. And, and I think this is going to... I know you have big plans. You know, like, I think it's going to impact people and influence more people than you even imagine. And I know that, you know, you're a dreamer and I know that you have these, you know, you have a number, but I know you wanna want it to make sense and impact people and, and you know, really affect change ultimately. I think it's gonna do a ton of that. And I think, you know, um, hopefully you'll be part of the next variation, you know, iteration of, of of a similar course and the actions that you're taking and the, you know, the, the, the art, this book that you're putting together will do a lot of the same things, you know, helping to, you know, put, put these things in, in, in the proper context. So salute to you. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really excited about it. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping for success there. It's going to be whatever your definition of success is. I think it's going to exceed that. Well, I really do. Yeah, yeah. Um, food. Let's. Can we end? Can we end? Can we just talk a little food? Yes, just we have food. to talk food. All right. So we follow each other on social, and <laughs> um, yes, you will tweet about all the cool, you know, teaching things that you're doing, um, but also probably even more so than than that, you know, is is your love for for food tell me about about that and like like my wife um you know she started um 
in, in the culinary school, she, you know, she, she's a huge, um, she's not a foodie per se, but she's, you know, definitely has an appreciation, really, uh, you know, great cook, but she wouldn't, she doesn't have the nerve to post some of the things that she like to talk about like your love of food and like what made you decide to, you know, to share so much of it with, with, with all your, uh, your, you know, your followers and stuff on social media. Yeah. I don't know. I think, um, when I was building, when I was kind of building my Twitter brand and persona, um, I was mostly thinking about and observing what really got people's attention. Right. Um, so I won't say that I was intentional and in kind of sharing, um, you know, other aspects of my life that weren't related to me being a law professor. I really wasn't, I wasn't being that intentional about it. But what I noticed was there were a lot more followers and a lot more likes that came with those food pics and came with, you know, some family pics. And um, ultimately what I concluded is that while people are interested in the work I do, that's true. Um, they're also just interested in a person. Um, yeah. And it, it was important for me to not disconnect the person I am from the work I do. Yeah. Um, and so so I've, I've been very intentional about that. And I mean, a big part of my life is cooking, baking. Um, and, you know, I, I'll say it's food photography because I think my food picks are good, but I, I think that's a stretch to call it food photography. <laughs> we'll, we'll just, I put a lot of energy into plating and, you know, getting that yeah. right image of the food that I cook too. I'm going to call it food photography. I think okay. there's definitely, yeah, yeah. Okay. What, like, clearly you're proud of, of, you know, the things that you're baking and, you know, cooking, but was there ever any apprehension about posting stuff? And then do you still have any apprehension around it? Uh, not anymore, but I think mm. initially there was, because I just was kind of like, what are people going to think about, you know, this? Um, but I follow, um, you know, I had, I found myself an in because I follow, uh, her name's Angela, but she is the Kitchenista uh, on mm. Twitter and she does Kitchenista Sundays. And so I found a way to do something that made sense. So it wasn't just like me. Now I'll just randomly post what I cook on yeah. Tuesday. But at first I wouldn't, I would only play Kitchenista Sundays. And so it was, you know, a, there was a reason for me to be posting this food picture. Yeah. I was participating in this kind of Sunday trend. Um, and so that was really, I think that gave me a lot of confidence. Yeah. Um, and it connected me to like a lot of, you know, other amateur, just home cooks who were yeah. you know, at home and proud of the things that they were making and, and posting. Yeah. 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 I, I think that, um, yeah, again, we've talked about a couple of different ways and a couple of different applications, but just being a whole person, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, we're recording this on a Monday, the Monday, Monday following Easter, right? We were, you know, on Twitter talking about Earth, Wind, and Fire <laughs> and the Izzy Brothers, right? And just the, the music. You know, food posts, uh, just social awareness, professional. Like you're, you know, you're you're multifaceted. You're not just one thing. And I just want to say kudos to you for allowing people into your life in 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 in, in multiple ways. Because um, the the I know the law 
field can be generally like pretty conservative and pretty, you know, uh, not interested in really showing much else. And, and you, you know, you're just, you're doing so many things just by showing yourself, you know, you, I, I think you're breaking down a lot of barriers for, for other people. And I just want to say, you know, it's, it's really inspiring and it, it inspires me to want, like want to show more of, of of myself and make sure that people are seeing like, you know, every you know m- more than just maybe one dimension of myself. So so you you're inspiring me. I know I know that you're inspiring others too. So thank you. Thank Thanks. you for that. Yeah. Um. So we have your your article that's going to be posted in, in the summer, right? You said June. Your your uh, course starts in the fall. Um, is there a, where can people follow you or kind of learn more about any of the stuff that's upcoming, or just look at your like amazing food photography? <laughs> uh, so the best place to follow me is on Twitter, uh, and I am at Prof Allen Tweets uh, A L L E N. Cool. Cool. Um, I just, I know we ran a little bit long. Thank you so much for spending the time. This was so good. And like such a great conversation. Um, Yeah, I'm always greedy. I'm always like trying to rope people into coming back. I'm not going to say that. We'll talk about this offline. Thank (laughs) you for your contribution. Good luck with all your projects that are upcoming. And um, for everyone that's listening or watching, thank you for for checking us out. This has been one of my favorite uh, episodes. So until next time, I just want to say thanks again for checking us out. Like, subscribe, share, all that good stuff. And until we meet again, peace. Thank you.